0: Uh, So Frank just ended the sermon series, Whatever It Takes. And so it got me to thinking, um, what's the first step for us? What's the first thing that we can do in the Whatever It Takes? What does that mean for our everyday lives? Let's open up our Bibles, if you have them with you. If not, we should have it up on the screen. To Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collector and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know, I love to talk to non-Christians about scripture and about church because they always have arguments. It doesn't matter what scripture you give them, they always have arguments about different scripture and how it just doesn't make sense to them. And for this one, a lot of people have a problem with this particular part of scripture. They said it doesn't make sense that, that he would leave one or leave 99 to go after one. Why would he do that? Why would he leave the 99 unsecured just for the one? Why not just save the 99 and stay with them? Well, let me ask you something. How many in here had somebody come back for you at some point? How many of you had somebody who prayed for you at some point? To the world, it may not make sense. But to us as Christians, it makes perfect sense. For me, as a a former coach, and as someone who who has worked with youth ministry all these years, I see the similarities. You know, I watch what Joe does here. um, this group, Joe, when you started, how many, how many kids did you have when you started here? 15? And, and now you average how many? 25, 30. Maybe more. You can go ahead and say more. It's okay. We don't, we, we're not going to check you on your numbers. The reality is, is Joe spends a lot of one-on-one time with these kids through coaching. And he gets these kids to know him on a personal level to where they wanna be here. As a coach, that was always important. You have 50, 60 kids on a team and you're trying to develop every kid. You can't make every kid go at the same speed or teach every kid the same way. Everybody knows that Joe's one of my former wrestlers. Not one of my better ones, but but he was one of them. I just he was actually pretty good. But we actually have another one here this morning Uh, Greg sitting up front here, he didn't know I was going to talk about him this morning. But Greg was funny because when Greg showed up at the school and started wrestling, he was a mammoth. He was a giant amongst everybody else in the room, still is today. That's why I like to pick on him. But he needed extra help because he was new to wrestling, and so I always coached the guys that were bigger. And so I told him, I said, stay after practice, we're going to work just on the things that you need to make you better. And so when practice was over, all the little kids come in and my wife actually showed up because our kids were little at that time. We're coming for wrestling. And so I took Greg over in the corner to make sure we didn't crush any kids. We're two big guys. And I said, here's how you need to handle yourself. You're a big guy, use that to your advantage. And I take my hand and I slap the back of his neck and I said, that's how you snap somebody. His eyes get about this big. And, And I said, you want me to show you again? I did it again, then again, and then again, and I'd say, all right, do it to me, and Greg would just tap me on the head. (laughs) After about four or five times him just tapping me, my wife looked at him and said, honey, if you don't start hitting him back, he's going to hit you all night long. She said, you need to hit him back hard. No, ma'am, he said, I can't do that. Well, it took us some time, but individually, Greg and I worked over and over and over on what he needed to do. And by the time he was a senior, he made it to the pinnacle. He made it to the finals of the state tournament. See, that's what we do as coaches. That's what we do as pastors. That's what we do as youth pastors is we seek out individuals. How can we lift them up and raise them up to a level that we know they can be at? There's nothing wrong with helping the one while the 99 are over here. We need more evidence of that. Pastor Frank preached on Zacchaeus A couple weeks ago, or at least three weeks ago. I don't know when it was, but in Luke 19, it talks about Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was not a favorable man. He was a tax collector. And we know that tax collectors were not well liked. So what does Jesus do when he comes into town? He looks up in that tree. He tells Zacchaeus to come down because he's going to his house for dinner. He went for the one because that one can have an influence on others. What about the woman at the Well, In John 4. Now, if you know scripture and you know your history, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. And this is what I love about how God works. Rumor had it that Jesus was baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And so the Pharisees were were coming after him, they were plotting against him. So Jesus left. But see, Jesus didn't leave because the Pharisees were coming after him, Jesus left because he had an appointment to make with the Samaritan woman. At the well, And when he gets there, the Samaritan woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, offers me a drink? I'm a Samaritan. She knows the rules. They don't get along. They don't talk. Jesus tells her who she is and what she's done. And she's amazed and says, you must be a prophet. She says, I know about the Messiah that's coming. He said, I am he. And because of that one, because he sought out that one woman, all the Samaritans came to check him out, and Samaritans were saved all across that region. What about the woman who touched Jesus' robe in Mark 5? You know, we know that when Jesus was coming through town, people were mobbing him and they were swarming all over him. And all of a sudden, Jesus felt something strange. He felt the power go out of him. Somebody had touched his robe. And he stops and he turns and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, you gotta be kidding me. Everybody's touching you. No, this one was different. This time when someone touched me, I felt the power go out of me. He knew that that person needed him at that moment. I'll say this, I'm always an advocate, and I, I say this all the time, I'm an advocate, advocate for, for pastors and for anybody who does Church work. I can tell you without a doubt that we have people often touching our robes and the power goes out of us, which is why your pastors, your youth pastors, and others need your prayer all the time. There's a lot of energy that it takes to run a church. A lot of energy that it takes to minister to each and every one of you as individuals. That doesn't just happen by accident. That's not easy. So, I would urge that you would continue to pray for your pastors because there is a lot emotionally that they put out there for each and every one of you. Whether it's time in prayer that you don't even know that they're praying for you, or time that they come to your house and see you, or time they just go out and, and take you to lunch. Pastor Frank's been talking about a guy that he's been meeting with on a regular basis. Maybe watching today. I don't know. I don't know who the individual is. That's one on one. That's going after the one. He has the 99 here, but he's still going after the one. Cuz that one can make all the difference in the world. And you say, "Yeah, but I'm not Jesus." I don't I don't know that I can go up to people and talk to people. I don't know that I can do the things that he did. I mean, he went after the lepers. He went after the sinners. He went after those who were sick in other ways. He went after the people that were undesirable in society. I don't know that I have that in me. Well, if we look in Acts 9, there was a man by the name of Ananias. Anybody know who Ananias was? Ananias, to me, is one of the bravest men in Scripture ever. Because Ananias got a word from God to say, hey, there's a man that has just rolled into town, and I need you to go see him and pray for him. I'm sure Ananias was thinking, yeah, I can do that. Well, his name is Saul. <laughs> hold on, hold on. The same guy that's persecuting followers, the same guy who is putting them to death and ordering them to be put to death, that's Saul? God says, yeah. I need you to go and pray for Saul. Now, I don't know about you, but if I knew that God had asked me to go see someone who was killing believers on sight and who tortured them, I don't know if I answer that call. I'm just being honest, right? I mean, fear is a big factor that we all have that drives us to either do something or not do something. But Ananias answered that call. And because of that, we have Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament. One man spending time with one other man. And we have almost the whole New Testament because of that visit. In 1855, there was a man named Edward Kimball. Now, my guess is you've never heard of Edward Kimball. If you have, maybe some of you in the back, have have you heard of Edward Kimball? Good, I think I might have stumped everybody. Edward was nothing special, that's why you won't know who he is. He was a Sunday school teacher. Back then, they used to still have Sunday school, they called it Sunday school. In 1855, he was teaching it. He had a young man in his class who had moved to Chicago to live with his uncle, and the uncle only had one rule. You have to work in the shoe store, and you have to go to church. My house, my rules. You go to church, you work in the store. Well, he worked in the store and he was good at it, but he wasn't so good at church. Now I can attest to the fact that I made a lot of Sunday school teachers retire when I was younger. Being a pastor's kid, I retired a lot of them. They were all up for the challenge until they met me. Well, in this particular case, this individual was trying. He had no desire to hear, and he wasn't even grasping what the gospel was. Well, instead of just giving up and saying, I don't want anything to do with him, Edward Kimball said, I know what I'll do. I'll go down to the shoe store. I'll meet this man. Well, I say man, he was 17, 18 at the time, and he says, I'm going to preach the gospel right to him in the shoe store, one-on-one where he can't run, he can't hide, he can't joke behind others. And because of that one visit, that one time at the shoe store in 1855, D.L. Moody found Christ. And you say, that's amazing. What's even more amazing is a guy by the name of Wilbur Chapman, sometime after that, had been in the audience when D.L. Moody was preaching. And Wilbur Chapman came to Christ because of the Moody. Well, Wilbur Chapman became an evangelist himself. And one day he was preaching and there was a professional baseball player in the audience by the name of Billy Sunday. How many's heard that name? Billy Sunday was a great evangelist in his own right once he accepted Christ. And so Billy Sunday goes on. They say he was very theatrical when he preached. He would climb the columns. He would jump around. He would shout. He would act like he's throwing baseballs. Very animated. I would have loved to have seen him preach. Well, one day he was preaching, and there was a young man in the audience by the name of Mordecai Ham. Now, we're going on in years here, and we keep going down the path, but Mordecai Ham found Christ through Billy Sunday. Well, one day there was a guy by the name of Billy Frank who became later known as Billy Graham, who found Christ at a Mordecai Ham. Service. You see, because one man, Edward Kimball, one man, decided to do something different and to go after this young man named Dale Moody and preach the gospel to him, that led to Billy Graham accepting Christ. And there were 79 years between the two events. Do you think God already knew what was going to happen? God had already ordained it. He already knew. Now, I told the story about when I was growing up, our pastor, his name was David McKinnon, and and I think I've told you that he was very similar to the nutty professor. Shirt was always untucked. They were usually buttoned in the wrong sequence. He had glasses. that, no matter how many times he pushed them up, they always went here. He could push them up, and they would slide right back down. He and his wife dressed like they were hippies, because they were, They were big time hippies in the 70s. He found Christ, became a pastor, and he was very soft spoken. He stuttered a lot, was unsure of himself. And then one day my dad finally gets tired of my sister and I asking and he takes us to church. And I've told the story, my dad said, don't worry about me, I'm already headed to hell. But you can save my kids. And of course David said, well, I I think God can save you too. My dad said, you don't even know what I've done. He said, I don't think it matters. And after some time of my dad getting frustrated because he felt like David was always talking about him in his sermons, my dad finally came to the altar one Sunday and accepted Christ. Because one man who really didn't know my dad, who knew nothing about the lifestyle that he had lived, basically said, I won't give up on you because God has a plan for your life. And I can tell you that through my dad's preaching, there were at least four or five others who became pastors through the preaching of my dad. I myself, you know, I didn't really care for my dad's preaching when I was a teenager, hated going to church. Later, he became the person I went to for everything. I would call him and ask him, what do I do here? How do I interpret this scripture? He, he really became my mentor, something I never expected. But my other mentor was the first pastor I ever worked with, and his name was Otis Essex. Otis has since passed on to be with the Lord, but I told the story that when I showed up for the church to interview, Otis was in a three-piece suit, crew cut, he was a former Navy chaplain, and we did not look the same. I had long hair, wearing cut-off jeans, tank top, and I thought, this isn't going well. But Otis saw something in me that I didn't even see in me. And at the end of that meeting, he stood up and said, you'll make a wonderful addition to our church. I thought, this guy's crazy. I wouldn't hand me the keys to the youth and he's gonna do it? He knew something I didn't know. He saw something I couldn't see. And because of that one man taking a chance on me, something happened. I began to fall in love with the ministry. I began to fall in love with preaching. And not only that, this church happened to be in a school district that was a former rival of mine in high school. And he came to me one day and said, Jim, our wrestling coach needs help. Do you think you'd want to go over there at Christmas break? I said, no. At my high school, we take pride in going home and training with the kids that are in school and getting them ready for the second half of the season. He said, boy, we'd sure love to have you over to school. I don't know what it was what I do now is the Holy Spirit said you know what go I called the principal up said hey I'll come over to practice but it's just to help out for, for break that was almost 30 years ago still coaching wrestling I met my wife through that school I was in ministry right by the school see God already works out plans even before we know they're being worked out He's working out plans in your life now that you don't even know are happening. You just have to be open to receiving whatever he gives you. So the Holy Spirit goes before us and prepares us always. I believe that. I believe that in this particular case, the Holy Spirit went before Edward Kimball and had already spoken to D.L. Moody's heart. I believe the Holy Spirit had already prepared my heart to be where I was and to do the things I needed to do, I believe he's prepared your heart to be here today. Well, back in Belfast Island, there was a, there was a name, man named Clive Staples. Now you probably know that name. He was known to Jack by his friends. But Clive grew up loving and reading books. He was well-educated, but he fell in love with the spoken word. He fell in love with the written word, and he was enamored by it, and he got as educated as he could get because that's the language that he spoke. Later, moved to England, had went through school, and had become a professor. And like Saul, Clive had his own little meet Jesus time when he was on a journey walking with his friends in a place called Addison's Walk in Cambridge. Beautiful, beautiful pathway with the trees, canoping over. And he was out with, his, out with the walk with two of his friends one night late, who are very educated, just like him. You know, that's what fascinates me about God. He can use the opposite to attract you, like David and my father. Or he can use people that are just like you, who think like you, who can show you that You can be just like them if you just accept the faith that Christ has for you. So they were on a late night walk and the conversation of Christ came up. And so his friends, J.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dawson, shared the gospel in a way that he had never heard it before. And Clive Staples, or Jack, as he was known to his friends, would go on to author over 40 books and become better known to you and I as C.S. Lewis, who wrote things like The Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity and The Great Divorce. I could go on and on. He has written so many influential books. He truly was there for a whole nation when they needed him during World War II. He brought comfort to Europe at that time. That was not by accident. That was not by mistake. That was not by coincidence. God had started preparing him when he was a child. But what happens if these individuals, what happens if Edward Kimbrell or or Tolkien or Dawson don't do the things that Christ has called them to do? What if David McKinnon had given up on my father? Now I know what some of you would say, well then God would just place someone else in their place. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But I know this, when we have the opportunity to minister to others, when we have the opportunity to leave the 99 to be with the one, we should take it, we should do it. So here's what I wanna ask you today. How many of you have spent time seeking out the one and ministering to the one? You don't have an excuse because it's been done all throughout scripture. It's been done all throughout time. So I'll ask you again. When's the last time you went after the one? Left the 99 and went for the one. We have someone here today because somebody kept calling them over and over and inviting them to church. That's how it happens. That's how it works. Each and every one of you are here today because somebody took the time to explain the gospel to you, whether it was a parent, whether it was a friend, or whether you just stumbled into church not knowing where you were, I doubt that. Somebody along the way somewhere influenced you to be here. Somebody was your one. Somebody left the 99 to come after you. So are you prepared when you leave here today to start going after the one? Because see, Frank preached whatever it takes, right? So whatever it takes, it starts right here with the one. Each and every one of you could go out today, and you could minister to that one that could be here next week, or the week after, or the week after. It doesn't always happen that next week. I'm going to be honest with you. I've had kids in youth group that it took them two or three years before they ever found Christ, and it wasn't through me. It was through maybe a retreat or another pastor, but I'll tell you a secret. I had a kid one time that we went to a, a retreat at the beach, and He accepted Christ, and I thought, that's awesome. God uses other people all the time to bring people to him. And we would always meet late that night with all the youth. We had about 40, 50 kids with us, and we would just do testimony time. We would just talk about what we saw. And this kid stood up and said, you know, tonight I did accept Christ. I know many of you saw me go forward. He said, I always knew who Christ was, and in the back of my mind, I kind of always thought maybe You know, one day I would accept him. But tonight, man, he just really touched my heart. The Holy Spirit touched me. And all I could think of was, I want what you have. I want what you have. And I want what you have. And he was pointing to his two friends that were in the youth group, and he pointed to me. He said, I've been watching you guys. And it's evident that Christ is in you. And tonight I decided I want that. People are always watching you. People are always wondering who you are. Are you as real as you say you are? I tell people all the time, my dad has passed, so I'm not trying to get on his good side. My dad was who you saw in the pulpit. I kid you not. Was he perfect? <laughs> no. And a lot of times I didn't like him. We didn't get along. But there was no denying his love for Christ or his love for sharing Christ with others. And he would do it anywhere at any time. I'm going to share this one last thing with you. When you go out and you share Christ, there's a tendency to just be agreeable with anything that they say or anything that they are. And I believe this is important for our society today. We do not have to accept everything that society throws at us. When the Pharisees brought the woman to Jesus and said, should we stone her? Of course, Jesus knelt down in the sand and wrote some stuff. And there's all, all these scholars who like to say, well, he might have been writing out sins that all these guys had been a part of. He may have been writing down women's names that they had been with. Who knows? But I know this all her accusers had left. Did Jesus say, hey, you're in the clear? Great. Have a good day. He said, look, go and sin no more. When we minister and we reach out to the one, we have to help them understand that when they accept Christ, He will transform their lives in ways they never expected. But let me give you this piece of advice: It's not our job to change their lives. I can't. I can't meet anybody and offer them Christ and say, "Now let me let me help you change your life." What I can do is I can pray for them. I can love on them. I can accept them where they're at knowing that if they accept Christ they will become a new person and change over time. That's it. That's that's what it takes. Everybody here one-on-one ministering. We're all in our small groups. We come on family night. That's our 99, right? At some point we have to leave the 99, the uncomfortable part and go out and minister to the one. And here's the thing. The Holy Spirit has already went before you and laid the groundwork. It's already happened. How do I know? He didn't just send Ananias into a hornet's nest. He had already softened Saul's heart. He had already prepared Saul. And when Ananias got there, all he had to do was hit the ball that was already set up on the tee for him. It's not as hard as you think. God is already asking you to go out and minister to the one. Let's pray.